0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: Thank you, everybody. I am uh, Harvey, and I am a grateful recovering sexaholic, a good person worthy of recovery and a child of God. Um, And I identify that way because um, I don't want to feel, uh, you know, people tell me they feel shame to have to say they're a sexaholic. So I don't want to feel that, and I'm grateful that I'm a sexaholic, and I'm a recovering sexaholic, and I'm a good person worthy of recovery. And that's an affirmation that I need to remind myself about every day. Uh, I like to start my uh, my shares uh, with uh, the set-aside prayer, and I, I'm going to share my screen so you can uh, follow along with me if you like. Your God, God, please Dear God. Help, us set aside help
2: us set aside everything set aside. we think we know. Think
1: about ourselves, about ourselves, ourselves our disease, our disease 12, 12 steps, 12 steps so, and especially you, God, that so so we may we have an open, open mind and a an new experience, experience and explode, all these things. things. All these Please
2: let us see the truth.
1: Okay. All right. So I... Uh, I really like the topic of this uh, of this day. Uh, first of all, so, sorry, let me start. I'd like to thank uh, the organizers of this uh, this wonderful day of speakers. Um, I think it's always wonderful when we can uh, we can you know really push in a lot of stuff in one day and do some really amazing stuff in recovery. And uh, I'm grateful for the Kitchener group and for the California group. And I think it's wonderful that people from other opposite sides of the world of, of America can get together and run such a program. Um, I thought I'd start with, uh, you know, uh, where is that gift, you know? <laughs> and uh, how did I, how did I find that gift and uh, where do I find it today? Um, you know, cause I am uh, certainly there. I can be there and I was there. Uh, I like, uh, the beginning of chapter 11, a vision for you in the big book. Uh, I'm a big book guy. Uh, and, uh, that, those first two paragraphs really, really, uh, connected with me. The first time I read it, read it, uh, I'll, I'll kind of split, come down sort of the middle of the first paragraph. Uh, uh, never could we recapture the great moments of the past. Uh, I remember when, uh, Sex, lust, masturbation really gave me what I thought I was looking for. Power, uh, excitement, uh, relief, that pacification, just that that feeling that everything was going to be okay, you know, and there was an insistent yearning to enjoy life as I had once did and a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control would enable, enable me to do it. Always one more attempt and one more failure. And the less people tolerated me, the more I withdrew from society and from life itself, uh, shivering denizens of his mad realm, the chilling vapor that is loneliness settled down. Uh, I really resonate with that line. Um, terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair, the four horsemen. Uh, yeah, and I, uh, I tried to stop every day. I, I'm, I'm same-sex attracted. I was uh, 59 years old when I came into the rooms. Uh, and I was a very low bottom. Um, I was availing myself of, uh, male escorts twice a day, uh, except for Sabbath, of course, (laughs) don't ask me how that works, (laughs) but, you know, talk about compartmentalization or something. Uh, I, uh, I don't know. Uh, but I was, I was a very low bottom. And towards the end, I was, uh, even getting into humiliation and, uh, I, uh, like I said, 59 years old when I came into this room. So I had spent probably 50 years, good 50 years, uh, trying to uh, stop this crazy, crazy life. Uh, This life that was, uh, was really an impossibility. It was really impossible to live this way. Talk about unmanageable, you know, I mean having to push people around to get an extra hour for lunch out of my office. I'm a dentist and I, God forbid, an emergency would come in and I couldn't leave when I wanted to leave. Boy, oh my God, did my office hear about it? You know, cause I had to get out at lunch cause I had a guy waiting to have sex with me. And then on the way home, I would do it again. And and sometimes I was, you know, I would, I would need a third time and, It was it was an insane life and a lot of money, of course, spent and and just 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 beating up everybody, just being so mean and nasty to everyone to get out of my way and let me get what I want. And uh, I'm sure if the big book had been written uh, in the 60s or 70s, you know, the the talk about the the conversation about selfishness and self-centeredness, there would have been just a picture of me Uh, You know, the spoiled brat, you know, and because that's what I was. I was a spoiled brat. Um, And uh, why was I a spoiled brat? And what had I, where where did I get there? How did I get there? You know, and it's interesting. uh, Gabor Mate, who is uh, one of the experts on trauma, you know, says, uh, don't ask why addiction. You should ask why pain? Uh, Why pain? Or why fear, I think, is another good one, because um, uh, I think that truly I was an escape-aholic. Uh, I wasn't a lustaholic so much as I would escape any way I could. Uh, from the time I was six years old, um, I was escaping. And I was escaping from a home that was uh, fairly, fairly dysfunctional. My parents were Holocaust survivors. Uh, they had lost their entire families in the war uh in the camps and uh, they came to uh, Canada had to like pick up the pieces of their lives and um, I remember some really crazy stuff you know we locked our doors of our house at least three times um every night we checked the windows Um, we kept suitcases in the front uh closet everyone had their own suitcase so if god forbid the nazis came we would be able to escape with a suitcase um we had books in our library that had been hollowed out that had money put aside for each of us and we knew which one was ours so if we needed money to escape we could do that um that was how i grew up i, I think about it now i said my gosh you know why didn't i get the uh, the help that i probably needed um my parents had a rocky marriage. Uh, my mother was uh, very emasculating to my father, who was not an educated man. Uh, my mother had been educated and she knew it. And her family was an educated family. Her par- her brother was a lawyer. Her sisters were all professors. She didn't make it that way because she got to the war At the age of 18, and uh, she didn't get the chance to go to university, but she would have gone um, and she would have made something of herself. She had uh, she was raised with governesses. She had a pretty nice life. Um, uh, Her mother had done the same to her father. Her mother had been an educated woman and her father wasn't. Um, He was a hardworking man. Um, but that's the way my mother you know was uh that's the way she was trained. that's what a mother does that's what a wife does. and my father was a hard working man he he really uh had a lot of pride in his work. I remember as a boy uh every year once a year we would go downtown to a street that had cobblestones and he would take us all out of the car and he would get on his knees and he would just run his hand over these cobblestones and he says kids i laid these cobblestones and uh and he was very proud of his, his work my mother on the other hand was a perfectionist and she built that into our life and i grew up as a uh you know expecting to be perfect and i had performance driven anxiety everything was about performance. And uh, I was a piano player, I took piano lessons, and that was all about performance. And school was all about performance. I was smaller than the average child in my class, and I was bullied. And uh, I experienced a a lot of trauma, as you can hear. Um, There was a lot of trauma in my life. And, uh, and I grew up uh, just feeling like i had to get away like i had to escape from uh from all the trauma that i lived in and that i had and so i first i started with comic books and i would be superman and i would fly off to the fortress of solitude where you know where i could be alone and be safe um and then of course i found my body and that was a heck of a lot more fun than the than the fortress of solitude um so it was uh you know it was the way to the races and um some of the uh, early sexualization that i had and perhaps my mother and it doesn't matter how, why but i uh, found uh, my template in uh, same-sex attraction as i said uh, and it uh, progressed uh, through my uh, high school career and uh, into adulthood and i lied in- to the woman that i eventually married uh, didn't tell her about my life didn't tell her about my attractions because I wanted to live uh, a religiously uh, appropriate life in my religious denomination. And I wanted to have children and I wanted to do all the normal things that that, that entailed. So I married her and uh, I did love her. I do love her. And we're still married, thankfully. Um, but uh, boy, oh boy, every day was a challenge. Uh, my life was just overwhelmingly crazy. Um, they talk about distress intolerance. Uh, I've heard the expression. And and that was, I think, how I lived. I was totally intolerant of distress. And distress was, you know, I used to think everybody should feel this way. And now I understand that that's really not true. It's really, really not true. Um, I experience anxiety, stress, rejection, abandonment in ways that normies just don't, you know, they just don't, they don't get it. And, and that's why these rooms were so special to me when I finally found them. But I lived in the, in that crazy place where I just needed to escape at all costs. And I've used food, although I don't think I'm an addict of the hopeless variety when it comes to food. I, um, I have, uh, I used a, uh, marijuana at one point. Uh, again, I, don't th- I, wasn't, I, don't, I know I wasn't a, an addict to, uh, to marijuana, although I could have become one. Um, today, I'm careful about alcohol, but I, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. But boy, oh boy, I, I am and I will always be a lustaholic. And, uh, and I need to respect that. And the gift of desperation today for me is getting to meetings and meeting newcomers. And reminding myself of my desperation, which thankfully I haven't seen in, in seven years. I'm sober since January 7th to 2014, for which I'm really never sufficiently grateful. Um, when I come to meetings and I hear the desperation in others and I see them crying and I see people and they do, and I see people just, just their lives are falling apart. I uh I'm reminded and it's a good memory it's a good reminder because I need to be respectful of my addict because I am of the opinion that my addict is sitting in my head doing pushups every day waiting for the opportunity that I can give him if I let him uh out uh you know I would be back where I was in a flash and uh so I came to the rooms and I was really desperate uh I I really was uh, I had been arrested uh, about a year or two before that, for stuff I did 40 years ago, but it came back to haunt me, and I'm sure that was God's way of of letting me know that it's time because I had spent 59 years, and I'm, you know, as I said, I'm a dentist. I was educated. I was in university. I had seen lots of stuff, and I didn't even know there was such a thing as a sexaholic. I just thought I was, you know, just hyper-sexed or huh, whatever, and I thought everybody needs sex. You know, the first time I met with my New therapist in January of 2014. Uh, he listened to my story and he stopped me in the middle of the sentence and he said, Harvey, gotta ask you a question. Is sex a need or a want? And I looked at him absolutely dumbfounded. And I said, Are you kidding? I said, Of course it's a need. Isn't it a need for everybody? <laughs> I thought it was a need for everybody. I need sex, I need lust, I need, I need to escape. And he looked at me and he said, I think maybe you should try to find an S fellowship in Toronto. Um, and I found SA. And, um, so I came to the rooms and what I found in these rooms was, I think the big word is love. I think love is really love is, and, and, and my higher power, which I, which is really love. Um, I needed to find love because truly I didn't love myself. Uh, I didn't love God and I didn't love others. And uh, we understand from, from Matthew and from Leviticus, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, of course, I couldn't love anybody else because I didn't love myself. Uh, low self-esteem was, was, was really, really there. And my wife, when I told her about that, she looked at me and she says, are you nuts? She says, you have a family and you have grandchildren, you have a beautiful home and you have a car and you have a practice and you have, you know, everything, you know, how can you possibly have low self-esteem? And of course she didn't get it. And I said, Sharon, it's all, it's all a facade. I am a whole series of holograms of Harvey. There isn't a single one of them that is the real Harvey and everybody puts their hand right through me when they meet me and my relationships are hollow, including ours. My wife and mine relationship was pretty hollow. I mean, we had uh, thankfully the, the, uh, the experience that we shared raising our children and then uh, growing together in many, many ways. Um, but, uh, it was it was shallow there was no intimacy there was no empathy i didn't know how to be empathetic because i think empathy requires love and i like i said i didn't have that and part of that lack of love for myself was i was also that understanding that i was just absolutely frightened of emotions uh i didn't want to feel emotions i was just petrified to feel emotions i f- I ran, I fleed from emotions and I shut them down and I escaped from all emotions uh, even the good ones even joy um, but fear and sadness and anger boy, I didn't have any of those and uh, and that was what I was escaping from and I understand today that uh, feeling emotions is uh, is part of love you know um, uh, this is going to be sound a little bit strange but i I understand today that, when I feel anger, that's me expressing the love I have in the face of opposition, in the face of boundaries being broken. I, I need to know that that's uh, really uh, that's what I feel. And when I feel fear, that's my love for myself in the face of a threat that I feel and something that's threatening my my emotional sobriety. You know, and um, and sadness. When I feel sadness, that's that's me expressing my love in the face of loss in the face of grief um and that's that was an that's something that i understand today i know that i had uh i had um i had no love i had no love for myself and i had no love for god my god relationship was um was really really uh very dysfunctional when i came into the rooms i um I was so sure that he had no place for me, that he couldn't stand my guts. He didn't want to see my face. And he had long ago abandoned me uh, the way my father did when I was 12. My father uh, took his own life when I was 12 and we survived that trauma. I don't know how. Um, so I grew up uh, expecting God to abandon me because, of course, I was uh, dirty and evil and despicable and, and uh, you know, pervert, whatever else you could imagine. That was, those were the the stories that I told myself about who I was. And, um, he had long ago abandoned me to the point where he wasn't even around to punish me. He left me in charge of the, as the warden of my own personal prison. And I was here to punish myself and I did a pretty good job. Um, so, uh, you know, finding out that I was, uh, Unmanageable. My life was unmanageable. wasn't hard. <laughs> I knew my life was unmanageable, and uh, powerless took a little bit longer to understand. I uh, had to find that, um, and I needed to uh, eventually find surrender. But I could not even imagine surrendering until I found a new relationship to God, which I did by uh, what I call firing the old one and hiring the new one. Uh, and my new my new God is uh, is my biggest fan. And my coach, and he sits in my corner as I, as I am uh, sitting in this, uh, in this, uh, you know, this sandbox of life, as I describe it. And, uh, and he's there for me and he cares absolutely for what's going on for me, uh, both physically, but most, more importantly, emotionally and spiritually. He really is there for me. And I learned it was a hard lesson that faith is nothing without trust. And uh, and I found trust um, and it's a, that's a gift. Uh, and that's really, I think, the opposite of desperation. You know, uh, desperation is the lack of hope for me and the lack of being able to trust anyone. And uh, so finding the trust in God allowed me to surrender. And I've read recently that there is a big difference between compliance and surrender. And uh compliance is submitting. If you submit to someone, you're complying. But the moment they have their back turned, you're gonna do what the hell you want. Uh compliance is, you know, it's temporary, it's uh it's timely, but it's not it's not real and it's not subconscious. There's nothing subconscious there. You haven't really, really surrendered at all. You've just complied. And and I know that the first few months when I was in recovery or not in recovery in sobriety. Um, I was not in recovery at all. Uh, And I was complying. I was complying with the program and I was going to meetings and I was trying to 90 and 90 at the beginning. And I was making some calls. Uh, It was hard to make calls because I didn't think anybody wanted to spend any time talking to me because I wasn't worth it. I was a piece of junk, Um, but I made them anyway. And I slowly uh, learned the attitude of gratitude that we learn about in this program and, And uh, that helped me understand that I am worthy because I can't be there. All this stuff can't be happening for me. And if I'm, you know, if I'm a piece of junk, why is God giving me all the good stuff that he's given me? And so I realize now that God doesn't make junk and I am not junk. I I am a child of his child and, and he's royalty. So I can even imagine that I am a child of royalty. and, And that gives me a good sense. Um. So I, I was, as I was saying, you know, uh, when I first started, I was complying, and compliance doesn't really work uh, because it's only as long as you uh, can get away, until you can get away with it, right? So, uh, And so instead of submitting, eventually, uh, with the help of my sponsor, who I didn't find for the first nine months, and I didn't find him in an essay room, by the way, uh, uh, I was looking for somebody who had what I didn't have. And what I didn't have was peace. What I didn't have was just that feeling of calm. And I didn't find it in the essay rooms when I started. Um, I found it in a CA room, actually a cocaine anonymous room. And my sponsor was a uh, uh, 20 years sober from alcohol and cocaine. And, um, and he had a light on behind his eyes and I could just sense the peace. And he showed me how important it is to learn the concept of acceptance because acceptance is to surrender as submission is to compliance i'll say it again (laughs) acceptance is to surrender as submission is to compliance so when i learned that i could accept and i have to learn to accept then emotionally and internally and subconsciously i was ready to surrender and in the meantime as i said i found a God. Who I was trusting enough in that I could actually surrender, that I could do, you know, I could just believe that everything was going to be okay, and um, and the rest is history. You know, I did a clean house and I did my amends and I and today I work a ten step every day uh, and I don't take any days off. You know, if I take a day off, I'm in big trouble. I know I'm in big trouble. It doesn't take much to get into a bad place. I uh, I can really it really doesn't take a long way. It's, it's really, it's right there. I'm on the edge all, all the time. But I, I feel, you know, somebody asked me why why don't say I'm recovered. And and I um, I don't know. I don't like the word recovered. Um, I don't know if anybody here uses it. Uh, I'd rather say I'm recovering because I know, as it says on page 85 in the big book, that I have a daily reprieve. So to consider myself recovered just sounds like a longer span of time. Uh, today is the only day I have. Um, thankfully, I have way over 2,600 days of those, but I'm grateful for every one of them. Um, but every day uh, I I am recovering, but I don't believe I'm recovered. Yesterday I was recovered. I could tell you yesterday I had a recovered day, um, but today I'm recovering because I have a daily reprieve every day. And uh, that day is full of, of work that I do uh, to stay where I am, and uh, uh, I get up in the morning, and I do. Um, you know, we talk about intentions, you know, and they 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 say the expression the expression is you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, the intent if I have an intention to stay sober, on toast. I, I am gone. I am not going to make it. Um, I need to, this is a program of action. Action is not intention. Action is decision, commitment, intentions, unless they are implemented intentions, uh, which is really an action, you know, implementation intentions is a term that I've just recently found. And I need to find ways to add things in my life that if this happens, I will do this. That's what we call an implementation intention. So if I, the alarm goes off in the morning. I get out of bed and on my knees and I pray and I say the third step prayer. And then I roll over and I meditate for 10 minutes. And then my alarm goes off because I'm an old man and I can fall asleep <laughs> in my meditation period. And then I go about my morning. I shower, I shave, whatever I do. And uh, and then I, then I study uh, and I need to study. And in the old days, when I first started, uh, my sponsor reminded me and recommended that I set my phone on alarm every few hours to remind myself to talk to God Um, because uh, the relationship that I need to have and I still need to have is that plugged in like a laptop I need to be plugged into God God consciousness has to be part of my day and I've learned that I need a balance I need to have a at least a baseline connection all the time I'm not looking for Sinai moments you know uh god and you know joseph smith in the grove if you're an lds member whatever i i you know i don't need all of those uh but i do need a i need a baseline and if i don't feel that baseline the first thing that happens is i remind myself that i i i i'm in trouble because i will feel fear because the third step promises are not happening for me i suddenly feel the fear of today tomorrow and the year after which is scary um and that's a that's a touchstone that's a that's a uh, a you know, like a, a little message on the side of the road that reminds me that, Hey Harvey, you know, you're, you just fell off the road. you something's going on here. You better plug back in. And I've learned to get on my knees when I need to. And, uh, and, and ask God to plug me back in. Cause I, I don't want to ever be without him. Uh, I know that, uh, that he is the answer. Uh, in my case, I call him God. You can call him anything you like, but, uh, I, uh, I know that, uh, there's there's nothing i don't have any hope um of staying sober or being sober without him um so the connections with god through the day i i i meditate twice three times a day today first thing in the morning and um four o'clock in the afternoon my staff knows i take a break and then before i go to sleep first the last thing i do is i get myself in a good place and i i actually meditate into sleep at night and i it's really helped me with uh with what used to be a crazy night of, of terror dreams and sexual dreams. And and I don't suffer with those anymore. So I am really, really grateful. Um, I'm grateful for, uh, like I said, the gift of desperation that I, uh, that reminds me every day that I am still and always be a sexaholic, but I am a grateful recovering one. And I do desire sobriety and freedom every day of my life. I hope for the rest of my life and that I can be of service to, uh, to my sponsees and to, uh, to everyone in my world. And with that, I'm going to pass. Thank you for letting me share.
3: All right. Thank Thank you, Harvey. Harvey. you, Harvey. Inspirational. All right. We'll now start the question and answer part of our uh, program. Uh, One question per person, please. Uh, The goal was to finish no later than 15 minutes past the hour. And I'll just say a few reminders here. Um, in participation, we avoid topics that can lead to dissension or distraction. The emphasis is on honesty, recovery, and healing. How to apply the 12 steps and traditions in our daily lives. No crosstalk, please. Crosstalk means interrupting, giving advice, or criticizing another person's share. If someone feels another is getting too explicit, they may so signify by saying, my hand is raised, at which point the moderator may consult a group conscience. Uh, press. Press on you before speaking, before asking your question. All right. Um, who would like to be the first person to with a question for Mr. Harvey?
4: My name is Cliff. I have a question.
3: Go ahead, yeah. Cliff.
4: Hey, guys. My name is Cliff. Hey, Cliff. Uh, my name is Cliff, and I'm a great recovery sex addict. And thanks, Harvey, for your share. I have a question for you
3: as it relates to... Um, Sponsoring individuals and being in meetings because you're challenged at one time with same sex. I relate that to me being in meetings with women, um, and I truly want to be healthy. Uh, but I find myself at times—not all the time—but at times that lust is still there. How, how how does that work for you? What I mean, what tools are you utilizing to
1: to abstain from a lusting and having healthy relationships with others? Uh, that I could possibly glean from.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Cliff, thank you. That was a great question. Um, and uh, it's so interesting. My, my, sp- again, my therapist, who I, uh, who I really love and and, app- and appreciate and, and respect the very first time when he asked me, you know, I think maybe you should go to meetings. The first thing he said to me was you need to identify as a same sex attracted sexaholic from day one. Uh, don't, don't hide behind it, don't hide, don't shame, you know, don't worry about the shame, just go out there and do it. And I did that from the very beginning. And I think that helped. Um, I I had uh, never experienced uh, male relationships that weren't embedded with lust. You know, every man I ever met was somebody I either wanted to have sex with or didn't want to have sex with. And Maybe you guys can relate to that with women as well. Um, that was how I felt. And um, so, my, my uh, you know, when I came into the rooms, knowing that I was sitting with people who shared my life, who understood where I was coming from, who had walked the walk, who had talked the talk, who, who I didn't have to explain everything to, just made things a lot, more e- lot easier because I wasn't there to impress anyone. Nobody cared that I was a dentist or what kind of car I drove. Or, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, people pleasing. I was just there. And uh, so so the the edge was off. The, the worry was off. The, some of those fears were off. Uh, judgmentalism was just not there. There was just a lot of love in those rooms. Uh, and there continue to be. I, I really, I find so much love in, in the meetings that I attend. Um, and uh, I also went to a lot of trouble to meet people, um, try to, you know, put names to them, put a bit of their life to them, make them look, you know, become people rather than objects of my lust. That was another thing that I really tried hard to do. When I met somebody, I would ask them, you know, uh, do you have, are you where? Are you married? Are you, do you have children? You know, uh, what do you do? What do you, you know, give me a little bit of something that I can like, kind of hook onto that makes you a person rather than just an object of my lust uh, and that really helped a lot. And uh, and sometimes I actually would tell somebody, you know, I I actually find you, uh, you know, attractive and I don't want to find you lustful. Um, so uh, I'm going to, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to sit in a position in that table, uh, in that room uh, where I can't look straight at you. And if you don't mind, I hope you appreciate that I'm doing that, not because I want to disrespect you, but because I do respect you. And I, and I did that a little bit, uh, certainly at the beginning. Uh, I have a foot fetish. And in a- when April came along and uh, the weather got better, I started in January when I got to April and people stopped wearing socks and open and they started wearing sandals. I actually had to tell people, you know, if you don't mind, uh, can you, can you come to to this meeting with shoes on? Cause uh, I had not worked through the fetish yet. I since have. Um, and it was really hard for me. Uh, and I, I was triggered by, uh, by people. And I actually, we, I actually asked them if you don't mind, let's set up a table and we would sit around the table. So I couldn't, unless I look actually look down, uh, I couldn't see under the table and I stopped having the opportunity to see feet. Uh, So I did whatever I had to do. So I, Cliff, I hope that answers your question a bit.
5: Thank you.
3: Awesome. All right. Uh, We got Ralph D up next.
5: Hi, my name is Ralph. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Um, my question is: um, How do you how do you find people to talk to in the program? I've had a lot of times uh, I'll call people in the program, and they won't answer the phone. Uh, it'll be three or four days before they return a phone call. Uh, in, in the AA program people will call me back right away and it just seems like people in this program aren't as concerned as they are in the AA program.
1: All right. Thank you, Ralph. Um, Ralph, I'm going to give you my number. (laughs) That's the first thing I want to do. Uh, My phone number is, have you got a pen? I'm
5: driving a semi-truck right now. Can you? Oh,
1: okay. I got to take your number down. Just a second. Give me one second, because okay. I think that it's a great question. And as I'm answering it, I want to take your number down. Um, so uh, first of all, that you're what you're describing was not my experience. Um, but that doesn't matter. That's your experience. And that's important to you. And it's important to me that you're having that. Um, I, I would keep looking. Um, I always tell my sponsees and people that ask me. Uh, it's really, really important um, to leave a message, even if you don't get through. Uh, leaving the message is doing what you needed to do, which was reaching out and connecting. and even if nobody answers, you've done that and that, that's a big help. That was a big help for me. So I never ever called anyone without leaving uh, leaving a message because um, that's at least the, the least I can do. And sometimes leaving a message I think might have helped um, might have helped get me a call back. Um, I, I made a lot of phone calls and a lot of phone meetings, and I, I think that's where I really built, uh, my, um, my, uh, my large, I actually have a huge list of people, uh, in my phone and I, I make, uh, I make a lot of calls and I get a lot of calls. Uh, there are programs that are looking for people who have at least a year of sobriety and I get those calls because I have a more than a year of sobriety. Um, and uh, but I used to, I I as I was about to say I I I kept looking when I started for people who made me feel like um, like I was worthy because I think that's part of it that's that love I was telling you about when I shared uh, I came to these rooms and I found love for myself and I found love for myself because people in the room express that love you know when you come on a meeting and you and somebody smiles they they they're obviously happy that you showed up and and they, and they text in the chat, Hey, Art, it's great to see you. I, I, th- I don't think you can buy that. You know, that's amazing stuff on the, and the, on the other, on the other hand, alternatively, I mean, if you call somebody and you can hear that, you know, the splashing of a bath that they're giving their children a bath or the television going in the, on the, in the background or a soccer game or a baseball game or whatever else is happening, I would scratch that person off your list. Um, Personally, that's how I feel about it. Because um, they're not giving you focus, or not. I mean, I, I think it's it's more respectful to say or text, um, Ralph. I can't talk right now. Can I call you back in ten minutes? Uh, that's respectful. That's a boundary. That's telling somebody I want to talk to you, but I don't want to talk to you when I can't talk. I don't want to talk to you when it's not, you know when it, when I don't have the time to give you the attention that. That you deserve, you know. You're a child of God, like I'm a child of God. And if I'm going to answer your phone, I really, really want to be able to say, "Hey, what's going on, Ralph? How's how's life? You know?" And I'm here. And and I tell people I have 10 minutes, or I have 50 minutes. And again, I think that's respectful because I don't want them to think that I'm, you know, I'm going to hang up on them and I don't give a crap. You know, I, I tell them from the from the moment I answer the phone, you know, what I have 50 minutes for to talk right now. I hope that's going to work. No, so I, I would keep looking, Ralph. I, I as, you, as you have, you had. I will send you my number. I'm about to do that. Um, and it's uh, it's I, I, I again. I, I'm I am a bit surprised that you have that experience, but but I I don't think you need to continue to have that experience. I think you can, uh, you can find people, and you will find people. You know, just keep working at it; you will find them. And uh, Ralph, can you tell me what state you're in? Because I want to put down something beside your name, Ralph.
5: Right now I'm in the state of Pennsylvania, but I live in Miami, Florida.
1: Okay. I'm going to put Miami there. Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to pass.
3: Great. Thank you. Um, thank you. Floor is open now for anybody else. If they have a question.
2: Yeah. Jonathan from California. Go ahead, Jonathan. Hey, um, thank you for your share, Harvey. I, Resonated with uh, one of the one of the deals in there. Are you able to um, expand on? Cause for the last two years, I've um, have been keeping a, a, a so at a least a day of rest. Um, right now, I'm on an actual Sabbath. Uh, what kind of effect has that had on um, your recovery and and sobriety, if any? Well, um, uh, it is uh, for
1: me. Um, A particularly special moment for my wife and I live very busy lives. She actually works in my office, which has its pluses and its minuses, as you can imagine. Uh, you know, our, my role in my office is, is the, you know, is the owner and the runner of the office, and she's a subordinate in that position. Uh, I have to find a way to find her feel more like she's a partner rather than a subordinate because she doesn't appreciate the subordinate position, and I don't really like being that person either. Uh, I don't want to be her, um, CEO. Uh, it doesn't usually work very well. Uh, but Sabbath for us has become a moment, you know, that that 25 hours that we spend together, the phone doesn't ring. Um, I will at times actually look at my phone if I'm expecting people who are texting that I might need to connect with, uh, but only by text. Uh, I don't take calls unless it's an emergency. Um, and they know how to get to me if they need if they need an emergency, if they have a call. But generally speaking, that doesn't happen very often. When it does, my wife is very understanding and she she appreciates that. You know, this is a, an SOS call. I am an EMS. I'm a first responder when I take calls uh, because those people are could be on a cliff and they won't call me unless they're on a cliff because uh, we have an understanding. They appreciate that my Sabbath is holy to me and I want to keep it that way if I can. But not at the expense of a person's life. Uh, you know, we, we live by our, by our, by my religious faith. Anyway, I mean, we understand we live by it, not we don't die by it. Um, so, uh, but Sabbath is a time my wife and I, uh, spend a lot of quality time studying together, talking together, eating together, walking together. We'll go for a walk. Um, we pray together. Uh, it's, uh, we are intimate together sometimes. And, and th- all of those things are part of my Sabbath. Um, in the old days, Sabbath was something I just did because I was, uh, you know, amazingly enough, keeping the commandments as well as I could, of course, except for the one that said I shouldn't be having same sex, uh, lust and and sex. Uh, but that's another story. But I was, you know, keeping my Sabbath uh, and kosher and all of the things that I did. Uh, it was, you know, it's it's it sounds completely nuts, but that's what I was doing. Um. You know, Sabbath in those days was uh, was something I endured so that Saturday night would come and I could go out to go downtown and act out. Uh, you know, today it's not that at all. Uh, the only thing I do, I do miss some of the calls and the, and the connections that I have with my sponsees and with people in the program. I don't go to meetings, um, but I have replaced that because, as my sponsor says, um, once you have a God consciousness, there's a priority to your life, which is in, in what I, that I believe is God-given. He gave me a wife, he gave me children, he gave me a job, and he gave me a community. And and, in those, and that's the order of my priority. So, Saturday is uh, when my children come to visit, we have my children, my grandchildren, but generally speaking, it's my wife and I, maybe some guests for meals, obviously not in the COVID world, but before that. And it's, uh, it's given me, you know, it gives me understanding that that's my priority and I use that and Service to my family is just as important, um, maybe more important than service to sponsees, to people in my fellowship. Hope that helps. Thank
3: you. All right. Uh, we got Steve T up next with a question.
4: Yes, uh, Harvey, thank you so much for your experience, strength, and hope. Um, as a man in SA, whose story is, uh, same sex issues. I've witnessed uh, a lot of, uh, of that, you know, prejudice that you get, you know, with, uh, men that think that, uh, same sex is, uh, creepier than, uh, heterosexual sex. <laughs> and I just love to see them squirm, to be honest with you. But, um, what I wanted to say, uh, you know, what I found is that, you know, when you're having that, ma- when you're masturbating with yourself, you're having same sex sex. So, uh, all, all all these straight men that think they're not they're not participating in it are actually uh, participating in it. They just don't want to be honest about it. But how do you deal personally with the prejudice that um, uh, we see amongst that issue?
1: So actually if you don't mind i'm going to comment on your masturbation being same sex uh self uh, whatever same yeah. sex sex uh, i i personally uh, always imagine that when men who are heterosexual or opposite sex attracted are 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 masturbating they actually are fantasizing and they have a woman in their heads um so the, yes they are masturbating themselves but they are not alone. There's a woman there or something female or something there. So I, I I, don't know if I would agree with your comment, but it was interesting. Anyway, I thought it was kind of cool. Um, but getting back to your point, uh, when I walked into the rooms um, and from the time I've been in the rooms, uh, yeah, there was there was extra shame because of certainly because of my religious denomination who does not in any way, shape or form accept uh, same sex attraction and, and the gay lifestyle as a, as a choice. They don't, they don't believe in same sex marriage. They don't see any of that. Um, and I personally, in my own religious beliefs, again, it's not, not, not germane to this conversation, but I have my views on that as well. Um, uh, shame was something I needed to deal with in general. And I think that's the bigger picture. Um, I needed to to throw away to, to to just dump the shame that I felt uh, and I had shame all over my life through my life i was I lived in toxic shame and and the the shame of my same sex attraction was just one piece of a much larger piece of a puzzle of, of of shame and 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 that shame was uh as I said it was toxic. Uh, I had grown up with the understanding that um that I was bad. Not that I had done bad, but that I was bad, because um, that's really shame, right? Shame is is that we are junk, not that we have done something bad. That's guilt, um, and I needed to understand that I was uh, I had lived in shame all my life, and as such, I uh, shame is the twin brother of blame. Uh, there is no if you don't have shame, you don't have blame. If you have blame, you've, there's probably shame there somewhere. Um, so I needed to get away from uh, the shame and the blame uh, cycle that I lived in. Um, and that uh, that was part of the work I did. Some of it with therapy uh, and some of it in the rooms. Um, I needed to find a way to appreciate that the only relationship that I have in my life today is the one that's defined by me and my higher power uh, and the God of Abraham as I see him. Um, and finding that relationship uh, as being the only thing that defines me allows me to have all of the other people who would define me as as gay, as a homosexual, as a predator, as a pervert, all of that stuff. Uh, I don't need to buy into that lie, into that story. Uh, it's not important anymore. The relationship that I have to have to my God in heaven is the one that matters. Uh, and I work really hard. It's not easy. I don't mean in any way, shape or form to make this a, oh, yeah, just turn it off. That <laughs> did not happen. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on this, Steve. Uh, but I have spent the time and I've done the work uh, to move away from the shame cycle and the blame. And the blame that I found in my four step, which was, was where I found it and I realized I needed to do the work around it. Uh, the lack of responsibility that I wanted to take for my actions and for my life as part of all of that. Um, so that's, uh, that's what I think is, uh, is really the important work that needs to get done. I pass.
3: All right. Thank you, Harvey and Steve. We got Stuart up next. Hi, Harvey. It's, uh, great to uh, listen to you. And I'm, I'm uh, very appreciative of what you've been sharing. Um, here. Sorry. I had me off. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about
1: the evolution of uh, surrender in your life. Yeah. So uh, at the beginning, when I got into the rooms, uh, somebody told me, you need to surrender lust. You know, <laughs> it was the first thing I think somebody told me maybe the first or second time I went to a meeting uh, and I didn't, had no idea what that meant. Um, uh, you know, so I uh, put filters on my phone and I changed my number so my escorts couldn't reach out to me and I ended up changing my email address into one of my email addresses. I closed down. Uh, I did all of that stuff which I somebody told me was all surrender. Um, I had to surrender the right to uh, to to want to go there. Uh, I guess that's maybe what I call I would call that. Uh, That was not the surrender that I think the program is talking about. Um, As I said in my share, um, when you realize that you are powerless and your life is unmanageable, and it's a lot about the ego that you've put out there to protect you from the low self-esteem that you suffer from. Uh, And if you want to smash the ego, and you don't smash the ego by finding a sponsor who is an ego. Uh, if I could uh, share that, I've got somebody right now that I'm working with. It's really struggling with that. Uh, he had a sponsor who was doing just that. Um, anyway, I, I I needed to crush my e- my smash the ego as the big book says, um, but I needed to do that at the same time as I built up my self esteem because I, I think self esteem is inversely proportional to ego. Uh, So I needed to surrender my ego and all of those behaviors, all of that stuff. Uh, But I could only have done that when I found the love that I could find for myself. And in step two, find the God that truly does love me and that I could trust. And then I built the arch uh, with the keystone that the step three talks about. Um, And I had to, at that point, really surrender my life. And then I was ready. To do that, and surrendering for me means that um, I, ha- I have a mantra that I say, and it says, life is none of my business. Life is none of my business. And stands, the, the initials are L and B, and I write LNB all over the place. <laughs> uh, I used to. I don't have to do it so much anymore, but life is none of my business. Um, And when I say that, and I mean it, and I believe it, and actually have learned to believe God, not just believe in God, uh, which is another point which I needed to get to, um, I can actually come to believe that the world is unfolding exactly the way my God in heaven wants the world to unfold for my benefit and to be challenging me. And uh, the hurdles that he puts in my way to make me a better Harvey than I was yesterday. And at the end of the day, I do it, you know, my, my inventory at the end of the day. And sometimes I fail and sometimes I do well. And and I thank God for the challenges that he put in my way. And uh, I surrender my night. And tomorrow morning I wake up and I, I'm ready to try again. Thank, thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank-
3: Thank you, Stuart and Harvey. Uh, we got Marcus B. up next.
2: Thanks for your share, Harvey. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Niagos. Thanks, to everybody. Um, you know, one thing I, ex- I can identify with the, uh, I wouldn't call it same-sex lust. I just call it crossing the gender boundary uh, when I, when I say it, as well as crossing the species boundary. Because lust really violates any boundary. It doesn't respect any boundaries. And I like how Roy K put it in another book he wrote that when I'm I'm really addicted to the spirit of lust, and when I'm under the influence of that spirit of lust, it takes me anywhere. You know, hetero, I'm heterosexual, but you know, I have a misorientation when I'm in that influence. Um, so, in regards to your emotional sobriety, my question is: How do you maintain your emotional sobriety? We have the tools of praying for people we resent and, you know, practicing some of those tools, but, you know, what does it look like for you today? Thanks.
1: Thank you for the question, Marcus. Um, So I do uh, step four, step five, mm, I would say on a daily basis, there's always something that comes up. Um, I sit down and I journal it. I still do it, you know, in writing. Um, and I will call my uh, spiritual mentor, who is actually not my sponsor. Uh, today, uh, my sponsor was not from my religious background, and he wasn't. Like I said, he wasn't a sexaholic. So I have a a, a mentor that I connect with, who is uh, both of those. And uh, and I will give away my fifth uh, to him um, because, as I've learned, uh, just talking to God and confessing to Him uh, can often be an opportunity for self deception, uh, as a uh, 12 and 12 talk about uh, there's you'll see uh when they talk about step five it's it's um and in the big book actually um it's really important to have another person uh there uh and then the important thing i think i've figured out along the way was i need to remember to do a six and seven as well which i think a lot of people are uh are negligent in doing they don't really get it Um, The six and seven are, of course, the drive-by steps, as as AA people often mention, often say. Um, They're definitely important to me. If I don't do a six and seven after the four and five, I really haven't given them up. I haven't really given up the the defects of character, which led to my resentment. Um, So I'm for sure going to feel it again tomorrow. There's nothing I can do about that. So uh, I need to really be ready to to give it up and then ask God to take it away. Um, and I have this little bag that has Harvey's name on it that gets you know put down in front of God's throne. Um, uh, you know, I like props. <laughs> That's my mind prop. Uh, you know, and I put it down. And uh, doesn't mean I'm not going to take it back because I'll be angry again tomorrow or upset about or resentful about something or or fearful. Uh, you know, and self-reliance is just not working for me. I know that, I know that way, way too well. Um, So that, that's, that's how I, um, that's how I, I, I work my, my four, five, six, seven on a regular basis. And it, uh, you know, I, I, I don't find that I'm obsessing with sex. I live in that uh, place of neutrality that uh, page 85 in the big book talks about uh, in the 10 step uh, promises, thankfully. Uh, But I, doesn't mean that I won't feel uh, resentment. I won't. uh, And when I do, it's usually because I've uh, let somebody else play God or or me play God. It's either me or someone else. And if I let somebody else be my higher power, I know I'm toast. So it usually requires some prayer time and get away from things and get down on my knees and say, God, I just made my wife my higher power, or I made somebody my higher power, and that's not going to work for me. So I pass.